0: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television
1: today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rapaport, and
0: me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with car stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Previously on Car Stuff. Ah, it's the old lost opening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> haven't yeah. heard that for a while. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we have used that trick a time or two when we do a two-parter, right? But uh, don't worry, guys. We're not going to spend an entire episode recapping what happened last episode. No, 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 no. In fact, uh, you can just easily go back
5: and, uh, and find that episode and listen to it. It's not all that long. I think it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, hope. yeah. Uh, there's a lot more to come because this takes, uh, again, a bunch of twists and turns
4: that are uh, you never would have thought that this would come out of out of driver's ed film. Right. This is uh, the second part in our series on public safety films, uh, inspired by a documentary you and I saw recently called Hell's Highway. Yeah, Hell's
5: Highway, uh, a little bit to be more specific, I guess. Um, what is it? Hell's Highway, the truth. Uh, hang on one second. There's a, a longer title, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the true story. Hell's Highway, the
4: true story. Of highway safety films. Yes, uh, made by an Atlanta-based filmmaker. Uh, but this, we didn't know this when we first started looking into the documentary. No, there's no. a lot of stuff we didn't know. Actually, yeah,
5: there's some there's some things that come out uh, today that we'll talk about today. That that uh, again, twists and turns that you probably wouldn't expect. But can I just do one, maybe one one or two little things before we start? Here? Oh, absolutely. All right. So uh, a couple of things have happened since we uh, we recorded part one and i uh, just to kind of pull back the curtain here it's been a while since we've recorded part 1 yeah. uh we we typically would walk in the next day or the next uh you know session and record part 2 however for whatever reason scheduling et cetera, it has been a long time since we recorded part 1 to part 2 and mm-hmm. i've got some updated information some uh some listener feedback already about part 1 which i know sounds crazy but that's the way it works it's cool so um here's here's another uh listener that wrote in as a facebook listener and wrote in and said that, um, I didn't know, talking about last episode, right, two days right. ago. yeah. I just listened to your podcast where you mentioned the highway signs near Chicago that count traffic deaths. I live near at least two of them, and I can tell you that it's an accurate number. We travel by those signs almost daily, and the number slowly grows throughout the year. We noticed that 2014 had fewer deaths than 2013, but 2015 is on track to have a higher count. It's a scary reminder that people die every day on our highways, and that came from a, a listener named Michael L., out of uh, I guess out of Chicago or near Chicago. Uh-huh. And uh you know I I thought well that's interesting because we did talk about that when we initially mentioned uh I think it was Chris Kay um out of Holland Michigan. He's the one who mentioned that he had driven near these uh these auto related deaths this year counter in Chicago or just outside of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And I had briefly mentioned that um that I too had seen a counter only here here in Georgia, mm-hmm. but we don't have a, a regular counter that stands
4: all the time on the highway. Right, we don't have like a billboard with a um, with a rolling count. We have we have a number that'll pop up on you know LED uh, displays or something.
5: Yeah, the type of sign that would be over the freeway or the highway mm-hmm. that says um, you know accident ahead, two left lanes closed. Right, and they can change it. It's switchable, yeah. and we occasionally on a weekend maybe we'll get an updated number of uh, Georgia highway fatalities. And the reason they do that is to promote seatbelt safety. Um and safe driving, no distractions, that kind of thing. You know, don't text and drive, that kind of right, stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, I think I mentioned that the the count as of um, and I got n- numbers here. The count as of April twenty seventh, twenty fifteen, was four hundred, and we, we recorded a few days later. We recorded in early May, I believe. Yes. All right. So the count was exactly four hundred on as of April twenty seventh. Um. So here's what I did, Ben. We're recording today, and I'll just tell you what day. We're recording the day this releases. We're recording on May 14th. And I I kind of counted the days of the year, and I I did a bunch of math. So do you want to hear a little bit of this and see if it makes sense? Yeah, walk me through it. The only only way I can get an updated number for today is like a projected number. So I had to kind of do this process, and we'll see if this works out right. Okay. Okay. So I determined that uh, April 27th was the 117th day of the year. And I had read a stat somewhere that said that um, on average, this is a terrible stat, by the way, on average, uh, the DOT says that we lose three lives on Georgia highways every day, every single day of the year. Wow. So that's an average of three deaths a day. Um, now, of course, we were at more than 400, and if you take 117 times three, it only equals 351. They said we're something like, uh, and this is ballpark, they said they were about 25% ahead of this year, like as far as death tolls go, or oh, the wow. death count goes. And it sounds like Chicago is doing the same thing. They're they're up from previous years. Um, by the way, that's a reversal of a nine-year trend here in Georgia. It would, yeah, I thought deaths were declining. Yeah, for the last nine years, they've been going down, 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 and this year we're 25% ahead of where we should be according to the stats. and that might still even
4: out as the year progresses. Uh,
5: it's not likely, though. Uh-huh. But uh, it really, it really is not likely, and there's some reasons that I can talk about in just a second because I—that's I, the second part of this, and then okay. and then we're going to get right back into the stuff. I promised Because yeah, yeah, I felt this is necessary. So today we're we're uh, we're 17 days later uh, from the day that I saw that, not the day we recorded, but the day I saw it. So it is um, it is officially the 134th day of the year here. And if you calculate in that average of three per day, which, by the way, we're not exactly meeting up with, so it's probably more, um, if if you average that or you count in that three per day that we're, you know, we add another 51 lives lost on Georgia Highway since I last reported that number of 41. But if you want to increase that, so so we were we're looking at a realistic number of about 451 already. Wow. That's between episode one and episode two. It's up to 451. Now, if you add in 25 percent, which includes 13 more lives lost, uh, we could be, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, we could be at 464 lives lost on Georgia highways as of today, if if all these numbers play out correctly.
4: You know, that's frightening stuff, and I'm glad that you brought it to the air, because one of the things that we were talking about previously was the great – argument of whether the ends justify the means, right? And one thing we saw happen several times in the course of the Hell's Highway documentary uh, would be these people who were saying, well, yes, it is violent, and yes, it is disturbing, but I think it's worth it because we saved people's lives. Ah, yes. Now, this goes to the whole argument of of why we're even talking Mm -hmm. about
5: this, why we're even bringing this up today, is and, and why that documentary was created. Does it take something this strong? Does it take something, you know, does it take seeing a tragedy like this? Actually witnessing a real life tragedy, a real life death on the highway over and over and over again to get through to a teen driver that this is real, that this is something that can happen to you even though everybody, I mean everyone in those films say it can't happen to me. They said that at some point. Right. Or, yeah. or they had that thought. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't happen to me. And and then it did. And so the the other teens that are you know left watching these films in Driver's Ed or whatever, sure. they've probably got the same idea. But now they've got a visual, um, something visual to relate to. To say, I've seen it happen. Maybe I'll adjust my driving habits. Maybe I'll buckle my seatbelt, whereas I wouldn't have in the past. Because right. again, you know, seatbelts were a uh, they were a, an option in a lot of cars at that yeah. point. Safety glass was in fact used, but it wasn't used in every vehicle at that point. I don't think. I want to say it was like the 1920s when. Laminated glass kind of came around, and people were starting to use them. But I think Ford mandated um, safety glass in his cars after a big lawsuit. Yeah, uh, he did not have it prior to that. Um, and, and let's see, seatbelts. I mean, seatbelts go back to 1885 for the patent, uh-huh. uh, but you know, you're still getting into like the 1950s before um, there were even options in some cars. And then get this: the first, the world's first seatbelt law, like where they said you have to wear your seatbelt when you're driving when cars mm-hmm. in motion, mm-hmm. 1970.
4: It wasn't until 1970. And, and okay. And let's keep in mind too, not all seatbelts are created equal because that thing invented in the late 1800s is more like a lap belt than the three point harness Absolutely. that we have now yeah
5: yeah the uh, the three-point harness I want to say that was in uh, 1955 was when it was yeah. developed or patented
4: Niels Boland no relation really uh yeah the name is spelled differently uh, sadly we are not related I, I would love to be related to uh, Niels Boland because his invention or his patent of the uh, of the seatbelt is estimated to have saved over a billion lives wow
5: amazing and you would be a trust fund baby right
4: now I totally would yeah, yeah are you right. kidding
5: <laughs> yeah that's a that's a huge Huge, huge advancement in safety. So, yeah, you're right. It's a big deal. But, Mm -hmm. you know, 1955, and then all these films we see, I mean, the lap belts are still optional. in Some cars. The three-point belt wasn't going to be seen in production vehicles for some time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they they just didn't. It's slow to adopt and slow to uh, to catch on. So there's stuff out there right now that, you know, we're slow to adopt even.
4: Sure. Yeah. Um, there, There were no crumple zones, for instance. Yeah, I mean, and we're already looking at things like, you know, Passenger,
5: I mean not passenger, pedestrian airbags and um, yeah. you know crazy stuff that you know they had no thought of in 1955. But anyways, I'm getting way off track already. We've got a couple of other quick things I'd like to mention. That that does bring about the one thought, and I have a question for you before I get back to the DOT okay. stuff and then into the films. Right, man. Sorry, Ben. Getting into into a lot of stuff here. Are but you kidding? This is interesting. So when I when I hear you know these seatbelt numbers and we're talking about seatbelts. Does this remind you of any uh, maybe relatives? Without naming names, okay. Any relatives that you may have had in the past? Because you and I grew up. Yeah, I was a little earlier than you, but not much. Yeah. And um, there were some relatives that just refused to wear seatbelts. Oh, even, though, even <laughs> when they were mandatory, even when it was a law, and of course they were installed in the car.
4: Right. Yeah. Any, the, anybody? I had a few. Uh, <clears throat> just just one or two that I specifically recall not bothering with it. One and again, we'll uh, I'll play by the rules here and not name names in case anybody in my family is listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one of my relatives had the best reason ever. Uh, he he was elderly and he said, "Well, you know, I'm at that point now where I, I've lived." That was that oh, was boy. his answer. Oh, and, oh boy, so he's got the. Uh, it's been a good run. Uh, yeah, that's he, his he very yeah. much did. But yeah. man, he was uh the. The boat that he was driving was, you know, gigantic. Sure. I, I don't know how he pulled it off. Uh, he also drove like a madman. And interestingly enough, in Georgia, this guy didn't live in Georgia, but in Georgia for a long time, there was a uh, seatbelt exception. Do you remember this? No. Uh, one of the uh, one of the representatives. Didn't want to wear a seatbelt, and so for a long time you didn't have to wear a seatbelt in a pickup truck. No kidding, because he drove a pickup well, you know
5: truck. What? I actually do remember this. This wasn't that long ago. No, not this, very much. I mean, we're talking like uh, I've only lived here since 2008 in, uh-huh. in Georgia. It was it was just finally I think they made seatbelts mandatory in pickups very recently. Since then, yeah. Uh, so so this is brand new or not brand new but recent. But well, what about um, you? You got the right, uh, well, seatbelt refusers. I do. My my grandfather on my. Yeah, I can say it. He's he's passed away, but not from this. But a um, uh, long time ago, I remember riding in a car with him or several cars with him. Um, he died when I was very young, but he uh, he just did not like the feel of the shoulder belt part of a of seat belt. He would wear the lap belt. Part. Okay, so he would buckle that, and then he would take the shoulder belt part. You know how you can extend it way out, right? And just loop it behind him. Or no, something? no, he would. It was the weirdest thing. He would hold it with his. Uh, let's say he's in the passenger side. He would take his right hand, extend it all the way out towards the dash, and and hold it out at arm's length away from his body, and then he would ride like that. Why? I don't know, but he would wear that lap belt like that. You know, he that was important, but he didn't like the feel of it across his chest and his shoulder. I don't know no. what it was—a restriction thing. But and I also have, um, I you know, I can't say who this is right now, but okay. I, um, it's someone in another state, but they refuse to wear a seatbelt. Will not wear a seatbelt, and here's the reasoning. And I think I may have said this on another podcast. The reasoning is that he heard one or two stories where the person in a really horrific crash survived due to the fact that they were thrown from the vehicle. They didn't stay in the vehicle. Now, this is a horrible argument for a yeah. lot of reasons because that means that you've been thrown through the windshield, uh-huh. out the side window. And somehow didn't hit anything. Or have somebody hit you afterwards. Right. Or, some, yeah, how or you, just landing. You know, just how does your body get out there? That's, that's violent, violent wreck. Right. and today's vehicles I mean you can make this argument all day long there they have so many other things going for them Air, airbags and the safety structures that are built around and you know all the um uh, the pretensioners and the seatbelts and all sure. that it's so it's, it's far safer to be in the vehicle during the accident than it is to be thrown free from the vehicle there's I know there's that one in a billion chance that that's the one that survives. But typically, if you're thrown
4: out, yeah, you're dead. And that's such a selection bias too. It's uh, it's such a common trait of a lot of people, myself included, to look for things that already confirm our pre-existing belief. Sure. Right?
5: Yeah, yeah. It's in your it's in your corner. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right.
4: So that one time somebody survives out of the hundreds uh, hundreds of times people have been launched through windshields i don't think that's a decent argument it is
5: not a decent argument i'll say and and the ones that we're going to talk about in just a minute because i've got one more little bit i'm yeah, sorry yeah. and it, I all, ties, apologize. it yeah. all ties together with the seatbelts thing um the, the 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 ones that we see in these films uh, a a common factor among all of them not not every single one but most of them is that they weren't belted in e- even in the 1950s 1960s right. the lap belts you know they didn't have the airbags they had you know Pointy things that were, were were on the dash that were facing them, mm-hmm. um, you know that kind of stuff that w- was just um, it was a far different era as far as car design goes and and the thought process behind what happens during the accident.
4: Well, there were also some urban legends too that wearing a seatbelt would raise your chances of decapitation, for instance.
5: Yeah, and you know that kind of stuff played into people's consciousness, and they and they they maybe didn't choose to do that, and it was relatively new. Some people had started driving without lap belts available even uh-huh. or they got in a car that didn't you know that uh you know like younger teens maybe got in a car that their dad owned that didn't have one but then they got a new car later and it did have one and they weren't accustomed to put it on and they didn't have to it wasn't a rule it wasn't a law
4: yeah so there it, wasn't it, any any seat belt indicator that came on with the little beep
5: beep no beep, there was none of that it was there and oftentimes it would just be tucked <laughs> you know tucked into the seat and, right. and everybody forgot about it so the last thing before we jump into the films again uh uh-huh. where we were last episode and uh, sorry all this I've been digging through this. This topic is so fascinating to me that I could go on all day about the other stuff. I found some some model models of cars that have been death proof for about nine years. By the way, really? Yeah, we'll talk about that okay, maybe okay. another episode, but because um, we're running out of time, so uh, <laughs> I'll I'll finish with um, some brand new information from the Georgia DOT. And this was you know when I was trying to look up the the uh, the current death toll numbers, which are unavailable to me right now. Um, all this stuff about twenty five percent, et cetera, that that came from this document. If you skip down lower here, um, it says that there's a reason that they're up 25%, and they, they know the trends. They can they can say, I don't know exactly why, but there's a trend that we're seeing, and it's probably something that you would expect. It's distracted driving. Ah, and yes. this is huge. Now, it's always been a problem, distracted driving, sure. but, but for different reasons. You know, like maybe having a cheeseburger when you're behind the wheel, or maybe right. uh, talking to the kids in the back seat with rough
4: roughhousing or whatever. Stuff right. like that. But now uh, the the widespread use of phones in cars, which some studies argue is uh, similar to driving under the influence of alcohol or a drug, uh, that, I, that's that got to be what's boosting the trend. Sure, it delays your reaction time. So they say that, um, now here's, this is
5: um, uh, a guy named Captain Alan Marlowe uh, with the Georgia State Patrol, and he says that our big three ones, meaning the traditional top three killers on our highways, uh-huh. are, our original big three um, have historically been Impaired driving, whether it's alcohol or drugs. The second is occupant protection, meaning child safety seats and seatbelts. That's a big one. So oh, yeah. seat belts again. Uh-huh. And the third is speed. It's always been there. Now now we're starting to see distracted driving emerge as a new contributor to this overall death toll. And just how big of a factor is this? Well, And how do they know this? Well, so far this year, only 30, this is a crazy number, only 38% of victims in fatality crashes were wearing their seatbelts. That means that... In fatal accidents, 62% of victims were not wearing a seatbelt. That means that, you know, the, the, the argument from someone that I know right. is it totally invalid. So, okay. Um, and 60%, uh, and here we go with the distracted driving part, 60% of the fatalities were from single vehicle crashes. And that means like hitting a tree or a bridge, things like that. So these are people on their own in the car and they just some, for some reason, veer off the road. Now, what do you think that reason is? I mean, they're all alone. They've got their phone in their hand or on their right. seatbelt or on their seat next to them, rather. Um, most of them aren't wearing their seatbelt, which is again horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty clear what's going on here.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport and I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's reality, reality podcast. podcast.
6: I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
7: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is
3: happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex.
6: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance. learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Let me, let me point something out too. This is a little bit of a tangent, uh, but then, then we'll uh, get to, get to the film because that statistic is fascinating. I've been, I've been thinking about stuff like this a lot, Scott, you know, while I'm at the intersection on my phone.
5: Uh, (laughs) Oh, Ben, I hope not.
4: No, no, I'm joking, but the, the, there are some, Great and frankly disturbing studies about how having a phone with you all the time can affect your brain activity mm-hmm. and your behavior, your habits. Because you get this, you get this little rush of dopamine. The oh, that feels good every time you update something on your phone. So for those of you on Facebook or Twitter, first off, join us at CarStuffHSW, uh, but, sec- <laughs> but not in your car. But not in your car. And uh, secondly. Uh, Keep a track of how many times you check your phone every hour.
5: Yeah, just, uh, it'd be interesting to find that and figure that out. Also, some people been, and it, it, this isn't everybody, I understand, but some people simply cannot ignore that alert. When they hear the buzz, they hear the little tone. Right. They, they, they feel compelled. They have to pick it up and see what's going on. And I'm not one of those people. I can, I can have it in my pocket and feel it buzz or whatever, and I won't look at it until I get home. Even if it's 45, if I know it's going to be 45 minutes later, I still
4: won't even peek at it. Yeah, you're I, the opposite of a lot of people.
5: No, I think I think there's a, a good number of people out there that still can, that still that still are like that. Others, I know that, like if it's on the table across the room, they have to run over to see what that see what mm-hmm. is happening or what's going on. Um, my kid is like that. Unfortunately, she's about 13 now, and I'm hoping to kind of, you know, to, to tell her why that's a bad idea, or why that's not so great. You know, to be so distracted, even with, she's not driving yet. Right, but. I could see that being a problem when the driving age arrives.
4: Well, let me further the argument here, Scott, because there are two, there are two parts to this. The first is that everybody, regardless of their age, uh, with access to a cell phone, there, there are also, um, dopamine experiments with rodents that indicate the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, your likelihood of needing to constantly update to get that do- little dopamine rush, uh, has some, Serious can have some serious long term effects in uh, terms of both your reading ability, like the ability to read a long article without going to, you know, um, I guess Tumblr or what's another one people use Instagram. Oh, Instagram. Yeah, my girlfriend loves Instagram, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm I'm terrified of it.
5: (laughs) I don't like I don't like the idea. So my kid's an addict, is what you're saying. Uh,
4: Well, I'm saying that you're uh, there's not just not just your kid, but any Anybody, um, and to a degree, you and I and our coworkers as well, uh, once we teach our brains to expect that little shot of dopamine all the time, then there is something kind of like addiction. I wouldn't go so far as to call it that because I'm not an expert, but there's a, a habituation. So here's the second part. And this is why this kind of is a segue for us with the film, because you and I have talked before about. The driving age, which is controversial, and here in the U.S., it goes state by state. In some areas, you can have uh, a license at a much younger age because, frankly, you need it to work on a farm, mm-hmm. right, or you need it to transport something between very long distances. So, what what we have found, we being scientists, who probably I shouldn't include myself in the number, <laughs> but what what experts have found is that the teenage brain is still developing. You are not, you don't hop in a car and become a, a grown woman or a grown man when you're 15, 16. What, what occurs instead is that your brain is uh, still evolving its ability to control impulse, right? To uh, make deferred gratification decisions to even do spatial, some spatial calculations. And my concern is that uh growing up with a with an exposure because kids are getting cell phones young young younger and younger and younger. Yeah. And Facebook accounts younger and younger and younger. And they're getting that dopamine rush or that habit of dopamine younger and younger and younger. And how does this affect a brain that is still developing in terms of decisions? I, I don't know. I'm not saying that the driver's license that the driving age should be raised to like forty seven or something. But there's some arguments
5: that uh, that it should maybe be pushed a little bit later.
4: Yeah, there there's are some compelling arguments sure. that it should be, and and one of the things that we see is despite all the all the massive uh, safety precautions and regulations uh, that innovations really that the manufacturers and advocacy groups and Uncle Sam have put on the road, uh, we're still seeing a rise in deaths because now. None of these safety regulations so far will solve the problem of somebody playing on their phone while they're going 70 miles an hour down the interstate. That's
5: true. Okay, and now we're talking about a world where... Uh, we have airbags, we have uh, side impact beams and doors. Sure, yeah, um, we have, uh, of course, laminated safety glass. We have.
4: Uh, we have crash collision yeah, we predictors. Have, we have
5: seats that uh, you know that react in a way. To whether you're hitting the front or in the mm-hmm. rear, they react so that they minimize spinal cord damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, so many safety innovations, but let's go back to 1959. Yes, where really none of that was was involved. I mean, we were. I've said it a few times in the other podcast. I remember, but. Um the steering column, the steering column was oh, like yeah. a spear, and yeah. it really was, and it stake staked it, through the it chest. It wasn't collapsible, so you could hit in the front end and that steering column was coming right at mm-hmm. your chest. And not only that, but I mean, the dashboards were they were solid metal with lots of uh, you know gauges and instruments right. and stylish dials clocks. And, yeah, metal uh, that protruded out that was uh, pointing towards the mm-hmm. driver and passenger. Mm-hmm combine that with seatbelts that were either non-existent or there but optional and oftentimes even in the optional vehicles that that were equipped not used um not every time but but most of the time um you had people that just uh you know that they frankly they had never seen anything like they hadn't seen these horrific accidents before unless they had you know happened to cross one or they knew somebody that was you know involved in something like that but they didn't really they didn't really see it. Now we see a lot of things on television today. We see a lot of you know whether it's real or, or it's dramatized. You know that right? Um, you know there's a, everybody's got a cell phone, uh, so they snap photos of every accident that you know they they pass by. Rubberneckers, you know they they yeah. grab a quick video, um, and that stuff makes itself on it makes itself available online. Uh, you know the the person who, who took it uploads it immediately yeah and then you know maybe it'll get pulled down maybe it won't maybe it'll live around for a while or or hang around for a while Mm -hmm. uh but we see some horrific things back in the 1950s 1960s it was um you just didn't see that there wasn't the internet there wasn't a place to go and see something like that it was like it was like a horror show yeah i mean it really was these films were like uh like scary movies but but more than they'd ever seen because you know i don't know what films i can compare this to but i mean they were, they were watching films like, uh, you know, the, the swamp thing and right, stuff like that. Right, the you know? no black lagoon. Yeah, and I, I know I've got the titles wrong. I'm just making <laughs> stuff up right now. But, but, but they were, they were, they were scary film like the blob or whatever. Yeah, but They yeah. were like that. They weren't like the, uh, the,
4: uh, the blood and gore, uh, films that like, we see today. Uh, yeah, they weren't like, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, or like Faces of Death. Hostile or something like that. Yeah. Well, it was just
5: over the top, you know, right. this gore, blood and gore. You didn't see that kind of thing back then. So these films, it, for a lot of kids were just so shocking, so stark, such a, uh, an incredible reality um, uh, for them to to take in all at one time in a classroom situation with their friends all around them. Right. And they really weren't expecting it. I mean, initially they weren't expecting it. So the first one that we had, and the one we left off on, was Signal 30. Yes, yeah, Signal 30. Yeah, and this was, uh, again, the radio traffic code uh, for, at least for the Ohio State Highway Patrol, um, it was the radio code for a traffic fatality, mm-hmm. and this was the first film that was made by the Highway Traffic Sa- or what I'm thinking of uh, by the uh, Highway, Highway Safety Foundation. Highway Safety Foundation, yeah, because they they do change names a couple times. Right. It goes from uh, Highway Safety Foundation to the Highway Safety Films Inc, and then uh, later I think well I think it stayed the same name later, but. Much, much less, uh, less production coming out of that. Right.
4: Uh, Signal 30, this was in 1959. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were still the Highway Safety Foundation. And this, this is one that has stayed in the public sphere. I think recently, uh, you remember that show, Mad Men? Yes. Did you ever watch that? I have not. No, I'm not a Mad Men fan. I, I haven't watched it either. There's an episode of Mad Men called Signal 30 that has a, um, Mm-hmm. And it's about Signal 30? This, this I, film. I don't think so. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But, oh, okay. But it's a, it's an episode of that TV show. It's still around. Mm. In, in the, what's the fancy word? The zeitgeist? Yeah. <laughs> well,
6: I will have to
5: look in it. Cause I bet you, you know what? I bet it references it in some way. Cause why else would it be named Signal 30? Right. It's yeah. set in
4: that era. So I would, I would see that, uh, that happening. So, uh, Signal 30, just so everybody knows, graphic, gruesome, uh, and it won the National <laughs> Safety Council Award. And, this is the biggest part, real. It was real. It was
5: all real. The fatalities, the people screaming, the the agony, the pain, the scenes that they came across, you know, that we talked about with, uh, and who are our players here? Richard Richard Wyman, Phyllis Vaughn, her Uh sister,
4: uh, Dottie Deems, who was Uh, also Dottie uh, Vaughn at the time. uh, Yeah, uh, that was a photographer, and uh, Wayne Byers is the infamous narrator. Yeah, that's right. And then Earl
5: Deems, who is a, a photographer as well, he's a cameraman, mm-hmm. and uh, of course John Butler. So those are names that we're going to refer to. John Butler was the uh, former chief of police for the Ohio State Safety or Highway Patrol, rather, uh, back during the time when Wayman was around and, and was producing Signal Thirty. So Signal Thirty came out. It's a sixteen millimeter film. And it was unlike anything driver's ed students had ever seen before, yeah. unlike anything the highway state patrol had ever seen before. It was it was groundbreaking,
4: really. Right. And it 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 kind of um, I think we might have mentioned this in the earlier earlier podcast, Scott. But there was precedent for this kind of scare straight film, mm-hmm. and it borrowed a lot from uh military films for young GIs going out in the field
5: yeah and industrial films yes uh for um accident prevention because right. the uh, insurance companies and uh who else i think it mostly insurance companies were were trying to save lives on the job because it cost them that's why
4: right and here's here's just an example of the narration uh because we're an audio podcast of course we're not going to show you clips of the film but you can find them readily available online uh Be warned, though, don't eat before you do it. Uh, I've got one of the lines here. You want to hear it? Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Now comes the nauseating task of removing the shattered hulk of a life that had been lived so little. Lines like that. The entire narration Mm -hmm. is that way.
5: Yeah, and very, uh, very dry, very, uh, very monotone, um, without any kind of emotion at all. I mean, that was that was the thing with these things is that it had a very creepy feel to them. They all did.
4: You know,
3: the
5: music, everything.
4: Someone told me. who was who I watching this with? One of my, one of my friends, I kind of, tricked them into <laughs> into doing some research with me really yeah we were hanging out and yeah. it's like oh you got to see this yeah and he well, i don't i still think he's probably not cool about it because it's very graphic but he's he thought it was an episode of stuff they don't want you to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah he could uh you could definitely shock some friends with this now one thing you
5: know what i think we should mention the uh the ambulance thing right now because oh yes this yeah is, this is an important part of this and i was i was i'll tell you I, i've watched uh, some of these films, I watched mm-hmm. some, not all of them. I've watched some of them. I think uh, Highway Safety films produced something like fourteen films, not all about traffic safety, but most of them. Right. Um, there were copycats, so there's a lot of films out there.
4: And the ambulance thing is one of the first things we wanted to get to in this. Yeah, this is this is amazing. Now,
5: thinking back, how many years now? We're talking almost sixty years ago, right? Is that right? I mean, yeah, sixty, almost sixty yeah, years. Almost okay, 60. so almost sixty at this point. You've got to realize that the ambulance drivers were not EMTs like they are today. Uh, the, the, it's not the same idea. The whole the whole process is completely different. The the EMT thing. I mean, I don't know if you can call it that, but the EMT program even didn't come about until like the early nineteen seventies. So the people that ran the ambulances were the people that also ran the funeral parlor and home. They, it was, right. The ambulance was the hearse. The hearse was the ambulance. Mm-hmm. One and the same. And the staff from the funeral home. I don't know how they would rotate this uh, this duty. But they would uh, they would be the ones that would come out and gather up the victims and either take them to the morgue or take them to the hospital, whichever was necessary. But they're not EMTs, and, and that's essential because they're not trained medical professionals. They they don't yeah. really they don't at this point in time and this point in history they don't really know how to handle somebody who's got a serious spine injury or somebody who right. has a a leg that you know the bone is sticking through or their, someone the who's skin. bleeding out. Yeah, somebody who is, uh, you know, internal bleeding. They don't, they don't know that there's a rush to get the, they don't even know probably that they have internal bleeding. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's crazy to see what's happening because when they arrive, um, you know, they may have a uniform on of some kind. You know, oh. they arrive in one of these old school Cadillac, uh, Hearst limo type vehicles, which is really cool, by the way. They look really neat. They do. But they, when they get out and they, and they handle the victims, it's, it's as if, uh, okay, so someone's laying on the ground with a, with a sore back and neck, you know, from this terrible injury, they're bleeding. They'll pick them up like, uh, like you or I would pick them up, Ben, like out on a football field or something like that. Uh, and we probably wouldn't even do that now. Yeah,
4: like one on each end. Yeah, like one on the feet and one on
5: the shoulders. And they, mm-hmm. they haul them on, you know, they kind of like heave-ho them onto a, a gurney and, and push them in and that's it. And you can
4: see this on some of these films.
5: And it's not that, it, it will be shocking to you when you see the way they handle them, but it's not that they, they, they didn't intend to hurt them or anything right it's just they yeah. didn't know better at this point they didn't know how to uh, stabilize the spine before they do it and you know the, the all the processes that we have now right. with emts they, they do it correctly but that wasn't known for another 20 years
0: hi i'm michael Rappaport. and i'm Kibi Rappaport. and together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's reality podcast, reality podcast.
6: I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
7: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival.
3: That's why it's called survival sex.
6: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance. learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Yeah, they need to, EMTs now, of course, one of the first things you do is you assess the condition. But when these guys were coming out, if the person was dead, they took them to the morgue and did a, uh, you know, started a late night of work. But yeah. if they were, if they were alive, then it was just a race to get them to the hospital before they died. And this leads to another thing. And this
5: is, uh, this is quick here in the, in the uh, whole process, but you What's may that? wonder, how did they get to all these scenes? When they did, how how were they able to get to the scene of a fatal accident at three a.m. on a Friday night uh, before the ambulance arrives? How do they how are they there to see the ambulance arrive? Oh, you're talking about the highway safety Foundation. Yeah, so like uh, yeah. you know, so so you know, you think well, okay, this guy named Earl Deems who we see interviewed in in uh, you know Hell's Highway, the documentary. Mm-hmm. How did he get there on time? Well, here he told the story of how it all works, and he said, well, of course, all the appropriate calls were made. From the highway state patrol, and they're working with them. They're working carefully with them. You know, they, they, you know, um, uh, Butler, I guess, said to Wyman, "Yeah, we'll cooperate because I uh-huh. think it's an important message. We want it out there." So they would, uh, you know, the accident call would come into the police station, and I'll just maybe this is off a little bit, but the appropriate calls would be made. Like he would, he would contact, you know, the officers to get out there to take care of the scene. Right. He would contact, um, you know, the ambulance company slash funeral home uh, to get out there as well. And then the final call, and whether there was another call to be made or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But the very last call would be to Wyman's group, to the uh, to the people that were filming for the for this uh, the series of Driver's Head films. That's the, so they they had the priorities of getting everybody out there that they normally would, then the film crew. And right. so when he would call the film crew, uh, this Earl guy said, you know, he would call me at about you know it might be in the middle of the night on Saturday, and you're know, like 2 a.m. And he'd say, We've got a fatality out on interstate, uh, whatever, out in, uh, you know, near Mansfield. Yeah. And he said, I could, he said, at that time when I was young, I could be, and this guy's like 80 years old at this point. (laughs) He said, When I was young, he said, I could get dressed in, you know, a minute and a half and be out the door with with my gear ready to go. And so he said, I knew that I was the last call, so I knew that everybody was on their way there, or at least would be. I knew that I could probably get dressed faster than the funeral home guys and get things together and ready Mm -hmm. to go. So he said, if I, I," and he said it, you know, and, sort of gently, but he said, if I raced to the scene, and he knew that was, you know, not the right way to say it, because right. it's going to a tra- traffic fatality, but if he would get to the scene as fast as he could, he had a good chance of seeing uh, kind of the raw scene of what was going on, of what was happening when the officers were there, and he was there, and that was it. No one else.
4: Yeah, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's tough when you think about it, because it, it would be terrible for someone to die in a car accident on the way to, try to save somebody in a car accident or take photos of them. And you can, you know, you can imagine, I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you can imagine how there might be tension between the ambulance, the MTs and and some of the maybe some of the police force, too, because these these people aren't helping. They're just taking photos.
5: Yeah, well. Uh, to be honest I mean you, you just said EMTs and uh, there really weren't any EMTs. oh that's so, right yeah so good those call. guys I mean the, the ambulance drivers and the uh, and the uh, the funeral directors or whoever they were that were out there um, I don't know if there was that kind of tension between them because those guys I mean sure they're there to help and they know that they're there to get the victims out but I don't think that they had the urgency that that EMTs do now because that's their purpose to be there is to stabilize the situation mm-hmm. to to and I you know, I know that they would be angry if they saw someone stand around doing nothing, of course, but also sure. you don't want to interfere and, and harm somebody. Back then it was a little different. I mean, it was like um, <laughs> maybe the film crew knew more about securing an accident victim or, or stabilizing an accident accident victim than the than the funeral home guys did because they saw it over and over and over again. That's a good point. Maybe even more than, you know, one individual group had been out to a scene before. I, I
4: don't know. Well... There is also one different thing. There's football in all this. Stuff. <laughs> I don't. I don't really know. Uh, I've got one different thing that we definitely should say, which is that uh, of the highway safety photographers, uh, Dick Wayman himself would just hang out at the police station, possibly because that was the best way to get the first call.
5: Yeah, because then he he without any conscience, could call his guy and yeah. say, "Get out there right now!" And yeah. he's making that same call, that phone call at the same time as they're calling for. Police backup and from the mm-hmm. ambulance. So um, yeah, that's probably not a bad uh, bad theory because he would be there often. He was there. He was a um, he was a uh, I don't know. I don't want to say hanger a, on, but yeah, no, this he part was part of a, the entourage. He was a police booster. Yes,
1: maybe that's yeah, what yeah, 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 yeah. That he
5: was uh, he was really into law enforcement. And uh, again, this is kind of a vicarious way for him to get that excitement. That, for sure, uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean nothing wrong with that, but uh, it paid off for him as, in the end, rather. Um, okay, so. Here's the thing. So that, you know, authenticity is really big for these filmmakers. Right. And of course, they're getting that by going to these scenes, but oftentimes they would like to maybe, just instead of just being shot after shot of gore and blood and guts and, you know, um, you know, the the dry narration of what's going on, they would maybe like to do, uh, you know, like a little reenactment, uh, beforehand. Like what led to this accident? Because, you know, there were, sometimes there were surviving victims, not all the time, but Uh they could talk to them and find out what happened the day of that, you know, what led to, um you know this this horrible accident and so here's what they would do and this this plays into the the whole um this whole genre of film i guess is that oftentimes the reenactments were were very poorly acted and there's <laughs> yes. a good reason for that and a lot of people feel that that maybe um you know the recreations we're talking about were poorly acted and they say that you know that might actually play into the way that um the way that this whole thing feels, it doesn't feel polished. It doesn't feel Hollywood. It feels, it feels very gritty and very real. Yeah. There's a visceral uh, nature to it. Yeah. And the reason, the reason behind this is because the actors were often local amateur actors or just locals that they picked up at a, at a, you know, truck stop down the road.
4: Or actual law enforcement.
5: Yeah, that's true. law enforcement as well, but they're not actors. They're, they're people who are just asked for the day to play a role. And here's what we're wanting you to do, um, I don't have any idea if they're paid or if they're doing it simply for the fame of being in one of these films or whatever. But yeah, um, you'll see a lot of stiff acting, a lot of poor acting. But again, people think that that kind of uh, plays into this uh, this this um, very amateurish feel which gives it even an, another level of kind of creepiness. It. Yeah. I don't know. It's, 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 again, it's,
4: it's definitely another level of creepiness. Yeah,
5: it's, it is. It's just gritty. It's real. It's raw. And that's, and
4: that's the way the whole thing feels from start to finish. And it offsets the actual footage of the accidents mm-hmm. and the deaths.
5: And uh, as Earl Dean said, you know, he said, when we were shooting those reenactments, we were having a lot of fun because... You know, we're we're dealing with people that you know are kind of excited about being in front of the camera. Right. You know, we're we're having a good day out, you know, on the highways or whatever, just taping whatever we're doing. It's it's you know it's it's fun to go on a video shoot or a film shoot, right? Sure. And he said oftentimes we got to crash a car. You know, like a, they would a fake they would, crash. They would yeah. buy another car that looks similar to the one that was in the accident. And they would get to crash that car. And he said that was a lot of fun, of course. But when they were filming the real stuff, that was that was horrific. That was uh, it was in no way fun. We didn't enjoy that at all. Um, in fact. They, they said well how did you even deal with that how did you handle what you were seeing because you're seeing the the worst of the worst here you know every week every day sometimes uh-huh. and he said I um, I and other camera operators got to the point where we didn't really take in we didn't really um, we didn't really internalize what we had seen through the lens until we got back to the studio and we were reviewing our footage when we were looking at the film that we had shot you know maybe, Two or three nights before, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the week, um, we uh, we just didn't didn't understand. Like, oh man, I I just didn't see what I was capturing there until until this very moment, and it's heartbreaking. And they would uh, said it was causing a lot of um, uh, mental issues with them, like uh, like PTSD. Yeah, exactly right. Like, you know how do I how do I handle this? But you know, again, he had this kind of uh, this is my job, and then then later I can think about what I'm doing. There were times when he had difficulty or trouble. Recounting what had happened 45 years ago, I mean, scenes that he had he had right. witnessed through the lens 45 years ago were causing this 80 year old man to cry.
4: And this is not a milk toast; like this guy is a hard
5: case. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, I mean, again, he had, he had lived. He's lived his life. You know, right. he's seen a lot. And uh, and thinking back 45 years ago, what he had seen on the highways in in Ohio was causing him to to you know become emotional. And, right. And uh, and rightfully so. I mean, there's a lot to it. I mean, there's some you know, specific moments that he points to, and I won't, you know, give it away or anything. Sure. Leave something for them to watch in the, uh, in the uh, documentary, but...
4: Um, uh, Signal 30 had two sequels as well. Okay. I should probably mention those. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. had uh, Mechanized Death, which was even more gruesome than Signal 30. If you can believe it. Uh, yeah, believe it or not, folks. Uh, and then there was Wheels of Tragedy in 1963, but... Although these were the first, um, well, these were the legitimate sequels, this spawned a sort of genre because there would be other knockoffs, right? There yeah. would be like Red Asphalt, Highways of Agony. And these other filmmakers, a- a Wayman as well, were upping the stakes each time. Mm-hmm. And it was becoming increasingly more um, aggressive in terms of the gore. I would say a little bit more formulaic too. Uh, we talked a little bit about how how radically different this became from so many other uh social guidance films, right' Because I think we mentioned there used to be in a lot of these there used to be one person who's doing everything right, you know, like little Susie perfect, right and then there's uh Sammy, terrible. I don't know i'm yep. not I'm Johnny do and Johnny don't perfect Johnny do and Johnny don't uh, but there is no Johnny do. In these, there is at best a police officer warning you of the consequences. And you kind of are just waiting for the blood and the accident to occur whenever you start these films. And, And I imagine, you know, Scott, look, some of my friends right now are in their, you know, in their mid to late 30s or something and are still terrified of seeing blood. They like they are terrified of seeing blood. One of them told me. It's because she saw uh, films like this when she was really young. No kidding. Yeah.
5: Yeah, the, the thing is, like, uh, you know, some of the, the kids that you'd be talking about, they saw some of the uh, the films that were probably produced in the 70s, 80s, ah, yes. even
4: the 90s. Which means there's a big, big difference, right?
5: That's right. In the 1970s, uh, a big change comes about. So, you know, these started in about 1959. That was Signal 30. It uh-huh. went all through the 1960s, and then in the 1970s, Things got a little bit different. They, uh, they they softened up a bit, I guess, mm-hmm. on the uh, on the idea behind um, you know these uh, these intense classroom movies for Driver's Ed. And here's the uh, the the at least the explanation from the documentary is that there was a, a heavy feminist influence in the classroom in the 1970s. Now, I know that some people are going to say that's probably not the not the case or whatever, but right. and I'd love to talk to the. Uh, you know our stuff. Mom never told you.
4: Oh yeah, uh, Kristen and Caroline. Yeah,
5: Kristen and Caroline. And see what they think about this, and maybe we'll we'll talk about this at some point with them sure. out in the office. But um, they said that it was kind of a move away from this uh, this male violence um, um, culture, I guess that mm-hmm. uh, that had kind of been been prevalent up until this point. They said we need to maybe think about the kids' feelings a little bit more. We need to say that you know see that. These things for what they are, and they're vulgar, and they're uh, they're even abusive to kids, is what
4: they said. Right, and do they save lives, too, is
5: one of the questions. Yeah, well, sure, that's always the question. That's been the question all along is do yeah. they save lives? Do they really work? Well, it turns out that, you know, some parents, of course, were vehemently opposed to uh, them showing these films to their kids, because remember we said 12 years old up to about, uh, you know, driving age, 15 sure. or 16. Sure. Uh, 12, uh, let's, let's just get this out there. 12 is way too young. I mean, yeah. if you're showing it to a 15 or 16 year old, Eh, understandable, but shocking still. Yes, uh, damaging to them possibly. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways we can argue this back and forth. But but twelve years old, I think we can all agree is way too young to see something like this.
4: Right. Oh, um. Can we go back to the sixties though? Oh,
5: we definitely will. But okay. But I, I just want to say that in the nineteen seventies, like the, the switchover, um, what they did was they instead of instead of going completely, you know cold turkey that we're not going to even have these films anymore. They switched over to a different type of safety film for Drivers Ed, and it was more more like um, we're going to show you crash footage with crash test dummies. And we're going to show you, we're going to tell you, uh, you know, some of the uh, more you know, the technology that's out there to, to help prevent stuff like this from happening. You know, like, if you wear your seatbelt, right. that's going to help. But we have collapsible steering columns now. That's going to help. We mm-hmm. we use padded dashes in cars now. That helps as well, but you should still wear your seatbelt. And also, don't put your arms out the window when you're driving because that's right. a, That's a bad idea. So so things like that. It was more crash test foot test footage, and um, it was just a, a softer way to look at something like this. So that was what happened in the 1970s. But going back to the 1960s, yeah. um, again... Still in these in this brutal
4: film time. Right, yeah. And there's a there's a heyday for these brutal films in the sixties. Uh as I think we have mentioned before, engine innovation was outpacing safety innovation. Mm-hmm. And that's one of that's really one of the big key factors here from a technological perspective. From a social perspective, something else happened that a lot of people weren't expecting. In 1965, a guy some of you may remember named Ralph Nader, uh who we've mentioned before on this podcast. Sure. Uh he, you know, he was doing a lot of uh consumer advocacy type stuff and he published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, which has also made an appearance on our show, right? Yes. Uh and there was an entire uh, chapter here on the Chevy Corvair which he called a one-car accident. Mm-hmm. Uh and Nader was, Nader was alleging that U.S. automakers were, I guess, trying to pinch a penny or save a buck by skimping on safety stuff, but this this really caught a lot of interest, and he, and he created this book in part because of this. I mean, should we call it like an epidemic of accidents? I don't know if you can call it an epidemic. I don't know if it was far enough to be an epidemic, but it was, there were definitely a lot. His, uh, uh, let's be honest. People did not read that. It wasn't on, you know, bestsellers outside of Washington and Detroit maybe. Probably. But I think these films, And the book and then the congressional hearings that happened afterwards were all related.
5: Sure. And they all raise public awareness. I mean, it Mm -hmm. becomes it becomes front page news.
4: Right. Yeah.
5: And that's the thing is that, you know, it it pushes that agenda even even further into people's lives so that more people see it and more people are talking about it with Mm -hmm. friends and then more people see it and it just snowballs from that point.
4: Right. And it went to, it, it went all the way up to Congress, as we said. And Dick Wayman was one of the people lobbying Congress for these safety innovations. So I think it's very easy for maybe the casual observer to just say, well, this Dick Wayman guy or Richard Wayman guy is a creep who likes taking photographs of violent things. Yeah. But that's not it, all he did. You no, know, he no. did. Try to become an advocate.
5: Yeah, in fact, yeah, he, he again he lobbied for uh, seatbelt usage and, mm-hmm. and other safety features. And as uh, and I think John Butler will point that out later in the uh, in the documentary. Yes. But but the, the thing about these these films is that you know they were they were real they were real they were true they were they were you know honest to goodness this is what happens when you don't wear your seatbelt this is what happens when you drink and drive um, they were very honest about what happens and they and it's like a stark reality. That they put out in front of the teens that were just about to get behind the wheel of the car, of the car for the first time, or maybe had just started driving, and when they see it like that, you know, they—I mean, the kid, the kids—they have to take notice. They have to realize, like, well, this could happen to me. Yeah. So some people I know would—it probably did change a few teen driving habits. I would think at least it made them think. And, and like these guys said, even if, you know, if it worked for a month, if it kept a kid wearing a seatbelt for one month, it probably saved their life at some point. Um, and I don't know if you can just give it a blanket statement like that or not, right. but, but again, he was never really trying to like, you know, trying to, um, just do it for the sake of, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to scare the hell out of these kids with these films. You know, it wasn't like that. He wasn't doing it in a mean way. He wasn't doing it in a way to, um, uh, uh I don't know is it's salacious, the right term to use in this. Like he wasn't yeah. trying to be, um, over the top, just to be over the top, to get notoriety for himself. Right. His, his, when I say these were true and honest films, he really did want people to be safer behind the wheel. And I think he had a, he had a strong interest in, in keeping teens safe. And this was his way about, you know, going about
4: it. Yes. Richard Wayman is a complex and I believe well-intentioned figure. Uh, and the Highway Safety Foundation, again, the big question that we are grappling with and, and you may be grappling with too, especially if you had to sit through these movies when you were 12, uh, is, is the following. Did these save lives? Does the end Justify the means because this topic, uh, this topic is so fascinating that we are going to continue in a third episode, which we rarely do. We
5: have done this one other time mm-hmm. and that was with Preston Tucker.
4: Yes. Uh, so this is, this is a rare moment in car stuff history. We're going to have to take it to episode three because Although we've talked about the um, we've talked about the origin and the society and the growth of this, the Highway Safety Foundation was far from perfect.
5: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of dirty little secrets in the past, and and the thing is, some of those dirty little secrets weren't really dirty little secrets. I mean, there's there's scandal where there shouldn't have been scandal. And, yes. of course, there is some scandal that, you know, was mm-hmm. truly scandal. But, um, yeah, it's uh, there's some other twists and turns that we have. There's no way we can get to them today unless we make it this a two-hour podcast. So, <laughs> uh, man, we, we again, we rarely do this, but uh, we do have to come back for part three.
4: So if you would like to hear some of the dirty laundry, the secret skeletons in the closet of the Highway Safety Foundation, and the alleged skeletons in the closet uh, then join us in our next and final episode in our series on public safety films in the meantime write to us let us know what you think we've been getting some fantastic listener mail about this uh, we might read some on the air when we come back uh, you can find us on Facebook you can find us on Twitter you can email us directly we are
5: CarStuff at HowStuffWorks.com For more on
7: this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Reality podcast.
1: We have a passion for reality tv and we're inviting you into our living room
0: we're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today that is right reality tv is the greatest form of entertainment on television today
1: listen to rap reality with me kibi rapaport and
0: me michael Rapport, on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast